Welcome to the Nathan Crane Podcast, your number one source for everything holistic health. Listen to guest interviews with top doctors and health experts and discover cutting-edge solutions for living your healthiest, longest, and most fulfilling life. There's never been a better time to become healthier, happier, and more alive. And now your host, best-selling author, inspirational speaker, and cancer health researcher and educator, Nathan Crane. Maya, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So uh, how big of a handful of mushrooms did you eat this morning? Before? You- <laughs> how did you guess? <laughs> <laughs> but we're, talking about, or- we're talking about the edible medicinal mushrooms here, right? So I'm talking about psilocybin. I'm talking about... Oh, oh. No, I'm just like a naturally psychedelically aware person. So my whole life is kind of a psychedelic experience. So, <laughs> <laughs> so what? What? So you are um, an incredible person, very fascinating, incredibly intelligent, and and a medical doctor who is very passionate about helping people awaken and heal using a lot of holistic and integrative medicine. Let's, let's say holistic medicine for sure. And psychedelics is a big part of, of your protocols, of your research, of your writing. I mean, your new book even is all about psychedelics, right? What got you into uh, the work you do around psychedelics? And, and what's your personal experience with psychedelics? Because I think last time we talked, like, you don't even really use psychedelics for yourself, right? I mean, am I correct in that or... Well, so it's kind of interesting. I think my story is a little bit um, probably unusual of the kinds of doctors who recommend or work with psychedelics because um, I definitely, my experience was uh, kind of me pulled in kicking and screaming, if I could say. So I, um, you know, my story kind of began over a decade ago. My son was ill at the time, my youngest son. Um, and, uh, we'd been in a mold, uh, our home had mold. Um, we got it totally gutted. We moved back in everything had been cleaned literally with toothbrushes, gotten rid of all of the upholstered furniture, stuffed animals, etc. Right. I mean, it was like, and, um, within two weeks of moving in my son, um, who was seven at the time went to take a shower in the bathroom that had been the epicenter of mold, but gutted, right? So it was perfect, tested, et cetera. And he had a seizure, the mm. first ever seizure. Wow. And, um, you know, I'm an adult and pediatric neurologist. He was locked in there. Um, so it was a whole ordeal, very terrifying. And, um, and I, and I, Did you, you break, know, when down, he the, you break out, down the door. What, like, what happened? What'd you do? He, we, I was banging on the door. I was, I couldn't break it down because it was one of these pre-war, like, you know, built to last kind of places. Um, but I was getting ready to actually call the police to, to help me break in. And, um, and then he kind of got up off the floor. We could see him under the door. Um, so he wasn't in the shower or anything like he wasn't in that kind of danger. And he kind of staggered out of the bathroom and I just held him. And when I held him and I think there are probably people out there who can relate to this. Like I knew with my whole body and my whole mind and my whole heart that this was not a physical issue. I was like, 
He's on all the supplements, the diet, all these protocols. I knew all that stuff. I knew how to help really desperately sick people. I'd been doing it for a long time, people from all over the world. And um, I was just holding him on my arms and I thought, this is not a physical problem. This is like an energetic problem or like a spiritual problem or a soul problem. It's, it's something I don't know how to treat. Mm. And it was a very humbling moment for me, honestly, because you know, I think we go through these periods in our lives, especially when we're younger, um, when, you know, we think, yeah, I was like, I could help anybody. You know, I mean, I can't cure anybody, but I could definitely help anybody with any kind of problem. Like I know things to do. And um, and I was sitting there and I was like, I don't I don't know what to do. I have to find people to help me and to teach me. And I have no idea who these people are. And you had no so, training at that point, you had no training in like holistic or natural medicine yet, or did you have? Some- oh, I did. I was doing all those things. Yeah, okay. I, he was on supplements. He was on the diet. I had written the dirt cure, like my first book. I mean, I was helping people from, from all over the world with, with intractable seizures, with autism, with um, just all kinds of de- de- sort of neurodegenerative mystery illnesses. I, you know, and I, and I think I did have that hubris. I did think, oh, like he's on all the things, like he's going to be fine. And then this happened, Yeah. you know? And, um, and I think that was really an important moment of, of awakening. Um, and interestingly, I don't even know if I should get into this, but, um, not long before that I had this dream that I died and I sometimes have had dreams that people die before they die. Um, not, I don't know they're sick, nothing, nothing. I have a dream. It's a very particular quality of dream. And I, uh, I wake up and I'm like, oh my God. And then it has happened actually happened before my father died. It happened before my brother-in-law at the time got diagnosed and he died a few years later. Um, he had had cancer, but we didn't know. Right. So I'd had these experiences. And then I had a dream like that about myself maybe like a month before that. And I was so freaked out, obviously, because I lost my father when I was young. I didn't want to leave my children, you know, without a parent, etc. And um, and I got this, I talked to this uh, amazing medicine man, Dr. Louis Melmadrona, who um, is both an MD and uh, indigenous medicine man. And he, he said, Maya, he said, the spirit guides are laughing right now. He said, they're laughing and they're laughing. He said, this is not a physical death you dreamt about. It's a spiritual death. And you have a lot more to do in this lifetime before you go anywhere. Mm-hmm. And I was like, whoo, so relieved, not thinking like, what might this spiritual death look like? And then within a month later, there's my son in my arms, you know, and I'm thinking to myself, wow, like, I didn't know, of course, I didn't put it together at all, but I'm like, now I have to go on this journey. And through various means, you know, I ended up on a trip to Ecuador, basically, um, with a fourth generation shaman who was also a PhD in ethnobotany. And we went to the Amazonian rainforest and I was going because I wanted to learn about 
healing plants and spiritual healing and kind of this whole mystical way of engaging with with illness this whole different paradigm uh, little did i know because they didn't tell us actually we can talk about the ethics of that that there was a plan to just sprinkle in some experiences with master plants which are these uh, what many indigenous people call uh, teacher plants or uh, what we think of as psychedelics these plants that are very potent neuroactive plants now master plants by the way include psychedelics but much more than that like coffee is a master plant cacao is a master plant right so it's not like they're all psychedelic but in this case we did engage with some of those medicines and i was shocked and absolutely upset in fact that that happened because it was completely unexpected they spiked your drink or your food with some <laughs> ayahuasca or something and you're just no, like, I'm... <laughs> no but they didn't like really warn us you know and i think some of the people must have realized but i was you know i was naive and i did not and um so that was like a very you know i felt like i was called onto this trip in this very clear way and after the trip i was like oh like i was being called i think by the plants by the way anybody tuning in don't ever do that to anybody else ever. yes <laughs> that's like one of the worst things you could ever do to somebody unexpectedly going into a psychedelic trip like i don't i don't know i, I just couldn't yeah talking about the ethics of that i mean you could really cause some major psychological damage to someone i think going into uh, a psychedelic trip and having no idea what's going on right or what's happening to you or what is going on like in you mm. know you could have, i think you could have some major problems you could also have probably an amazing experience depending on who you're with and what happens and all that but i think you could also you know have a really bad trip too well in the research for my book one of the things that i discovered was that um, when lsd uh not a master plant right it's chemical but when LSD was first uh, available in the 50s in the US, who was driving all of the research that was being done in academic settings, but the military and the government. Yeah, and yeah. one of the things that they were doing in like the CIA, for example, was um, spiking people's like agents. And then interrogating. Or spiking each other's you know, food with LSD and seeing what would happen. And the military also started experimenting as well with LSD as a, as a weapon, a weapon, you know, to d disable their enemies. So, um, so it's interesting what you're bringing up because I really dive into that topic of like, how do we, how do we know how to engage properly respectfully appropriately with these really powerful medicines well we know it's really well documented um uh and you know they had to go say the cia had to go before congress and all this the program called mk ultra right which was from the 1950s to the 1970s where the cia was developing and using illegally by the way that's right drugs to controlled the mind and interrogate people. So they were, you know, trying to basically use LSD and other drugs, create drugs to 
control people's minds and to interrogate them and to, you know, and it was, it was a, a very illegal thing that was happening. Um, and it's a very, and I mean, almost a form of torture, if you will, you know, yes, a form of torture. Yeah, Not absolutely. Almost. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, absolutely yeah. a form of torture, I should say. I mean, very torturous. I mean, these people were in agony and pain and despair and 100% torture. Um, it's crazy. So you can, I mean, they can be used for, right, torture. They can be used for spiritual awakening and healing, um, which is quite interesting. You could have both extremes with something like a psychedelic experience. Um, well, in fact... And, and this is something I talk about also quite a bit in the book is about, you know, indigenous people are very clear that, let's say, for example, ayahuasca or any of these master plants, they're not just unequivocally good. They, it's very clear and they make very clear that all of them have the capacity for kind of medicine or malice. Mm -hmm. So there's this idea of, you know, and this is one of the things that I really dove into and I've I've talked about in my book, The Dura Cure and a lot since then, is that we're all in relationship and and there's no nothing is static, nothing is fixed. We can't say this is all good or this is all bad, but in fact, it's about the relationship between, you know, in this case, the person and the plant. So it's absolutely true that who we are, what we bring how we come, how even the medicine itself is harvested, prepared, uh, the ceremony around that, whatever it may be, you know, and we can talk about what ceremony really is, but it is, that is what defines the medicine and whether you will get the best of that plant or whether you will get the worst. And in, in the case of um, the indigenous communities I've spoken with, it's really about sorcery, right? I mean, that is a paradigm in the indigenous world. And I think we probably like, it's it's like we want to whitewash that discussion in Western society because, or Northern, let's say society, because it's it seems very primitive or it seems very superstitious, but you know, their idea is you can use these things for good and for evil. And um, I think it's important that we think about those things um, in with a very open mind and so that we uh, don't do more damage Right, that we want to we want to get well and not create worse outcomes. Yeah, I mean, talking about you know medicinal uses and getting well. Um, I remember when they were doing when I was living in San Diego, they were doing studies uh, with the soldiers, I believe, in the Navy uh, with PTSD, and they were doing studies with psilocybin on depression and anxiety and PTSD. And what they were finding was um, incredibly powerful and sustained positive benefits and results dealing with depression, anxiety, and PTSD in soldiers compared to, um, compared to drugs, right? Compared to antidepressants. And what's fascinating about that is how, you know, these, as you call them, master plants are here on the earth already, which is, which is something we could talk about. I believe they were like designed for a purpose um, and how when used appropriately, they can be a profoundly healing mental, emotional, spiritual, and even physical healing. Um, yeah. You know, you can't even call it a medicine. Uh, yeah, you could call it a medicine, a profoundly healing medicine 
and almost almost transformational in a way that is like 10 times more effective than therapy, for example, at least in my own case, uh, you know, mushrooms saved my life. And we can talk about that later, but, um, and I, I don't use them now, but I needed them at one point in my life. Uh, and they really saved, they really saved my life. But going back to, to your story a little bit, uh, I want to know more about this experience in Ecuador where you're, you were spiked with, uh, you're surprised with some psychedelic experience. What, what happened? Like, what was that like? What did you do? Oh my gosh, the stories I could tell really, but no, no one spiked anything. It wasn't like that. And that's not how things are done there. You know, it was more just, oh, by the way, you know, here you can have this and, you know, we're going to, we're going to sample <laughs> ayahuasca. We're going to right the way actually, and this is another interesting oh, it point. Wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't spiked unknowingly. It just no, 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 no. Okay. No, but I didn't know going to the experience uh, or at like the start of that day, for instance, that that was going to happen. It was very okay. kind of like we didn't we didn't know. I wasn't I at least was was not clear that those things were happening. Everybody, and, uh, everybody else probably knew ahead of time. And they're possible, like, All right, yeah. let's do this. And you're like, what the hell is going on? <laughs> Pretty much possible, possible. Um, yeah. But um but no, I mean, it was done with like, you know, some of the indigenous healers of that particular place because we travel to different places in the country and um, and they did do, you know, some very fascinating uh, healing ceremonies where, you know, sometimes involved having to take your clothes off if they, you know, they would hit you with plants, sometimes with like stinging nettles, you'd end up with welts all over. It was it was a very it was very profound and sometimes almost like absurd <laughs> felt like, um, you know, and for me, it was a very initiatory process. Like I think of these initiatory processes as being very important medicine in and of themselves. And, you know, for me, like training to become a doctor is a very initiatory process. It's like an initiation where you're in a lot of pain, right? You can't go to the bathroom when you want to, you can't eat when you want to, you can't sleep when you want to, you don't have control over your time. It could be your birthday, it could be your anniversary. You could have someone sick in your family. You have to show up, you have to perform, you have to be in this kind of, you know, we could almost say like this church of, you know, of, uh, well, I'd like to say healing, but the hospital doesn't usually feel that way. Um, but, you know, of medicine, let's say. And um, so that is a kind of initiation. And this too was a different kind of initiation where I was being initiated into um, really like a whole different way of thinking about the body that I was already attuned to having been part of the holistic community and being, you know, an integrative adult and pediatric neurologist for years already. But uh, this was different because, you know, they were very clear, like physical illness is totally downstream. That's not right. Like if you're experiencing physical symptoms in that world, in that paradigm, you've already been sick for a very, very, very long time spiritually. You're not in right relationship. You're not in the right way of being with yourself, with those around you, with the land you stand on, with your ancestors and the invisible. You are out of good relationship. And that's spiritually making you sick. 
And then that's when mental and physical illness starts to present itself. So it was a completely different kind of, you know, medical school experience, let's just say. Yeah. And that's such a powerful concept to grasp once you do like, so it's, it's the same concept that I learned from, uh, doing many ceremonies with Native Americans, uh, Lakota Sioux, uh, a number of different uh, Native American tribes over the years, same concept, as well as what I learned in studying ancient Eastern Chinese medicine through uh, the tradition of Qigong, right? Qigong and ancient Eastern medicine has the exact same um, language, basically the exact same philosophy or understanding, if you will, about if you are having physical ailments, it is always related to an underlying disconnection from your highest self, from your, your energy. Like in Qigong, it's your energy is blocked. Why is it blocked? Because of stress, because of fear, because of anxiety, because of what you're eating, the way you're living. You're, as you said, you're out of right relations. It's a very... Um, you know, Native American terms, relation, right relations with source, with spirit, with God, with the earth, as you said, with your ancestors. And when you become into, when you come into right relations or good relations, meaning um, what I take from that is, is respect and appreciation and connection. And those things lead to good decisions for our health, right? You don't eat as poorly. You don't live as poorly. You, you tend to take care of yourself better because if you love God, you love the earth, you love the plants, you love people, you also love yourself. You kind of, you really have to love yourself to love everything else. You know, that's, that's a really important concept. And in loving yourself, you realize, oh, if I'm smoking a cigarette and drinking this alcohol and sitting on the couch 12 hours a day and not exercising, not taking care of myself, I'm destroying myself. That's not self-love. You know, we can kind of put on this facade and act like we love ourselves by, you know, going out and loving everybody else and forgetting about ourselves. But at the end of the day, if we don't really learn to love and respect and appreciate ourselves, we really can't show that to anybody else at a deep and true level. It's, I mean, that's what I believe. Um, well, I mean, I think it's even, you know, like there's this really important component of that, which is, um, well, first of all, kindness to ourself is also rest. It's also engaging in creative things, right? Like bringing in, of course, we want to eat well and exercise and all of these kinds of disciplines, doings. But we also, you know, those are in a certain way, us dictating things to our bodies and, and being in this place of, you know, in a sense, like achieving, Right. There is this way in which, you know, and and I'm not knocking that. Obviously, I very much promote and support all of those things. And there's also a way in which and we can talk about right hemisphere and left hemisphere and how, um, you know, each of the sides of the brain are like a brain in and of themselves, um, kind of of the. The masculine and the, the feminine, not gender, not in a gendered way, but in a uh, archetypal way that um, we need to also nurture that right hemisphere, which is all about um, kind of big picture, creativity, uh, daydream, rest, like 
kind of the connecting the dots and, and, um, and not being in the nonlinear. So something that we've really pushed in our society, and you know, this is a very nerdy topic, and I do go into it more in my book, is really about uh, we've become very left hemisphere focused, which is very regimented and very linear and very like, these are the things you have to do, this, then this, then this, then this. And, um, and I think that we need balance. And I do think this is part of being in right relationship with ourselves is where, you know, how do we create spaciousness for ourselves? And how do we um, step outside of time and space, ordinary time and space, you know, which can be through creative things like painting, drawing, dancing, um, you know, meditating, um, but also being in nature, right? All of those kinds of things and, um, and ceremony, right? Doing rituals, being in ceremony where we're, where we're, we're not in that kind of left brain way, but more in this right brain sort of paradigm. I do think that's also part of right relationship. And then really to your point of how important it is to take care of ourselves, to be in right relationship, we, right, we know now we have this biofield, which is comprised in part of this measurable electromagnetic field that we emit from our heart, but really from every cell in our bodies, our brains and our, all of our organs, all emitting this measurable electromagnetic field that influences and combines with the electromagnetic fields and biofields of those around us. So we, in the way that we operate, the way we comport ourselves, we actually change the way other people feel simply by us feeling a sense of gratitude and appreciation and reverence we create, right? We're co-creating our reality simply by just how we feel and our own way of being. Um, and that's like, I think, amazing because we, I think in general in our society think, well, that person wronged me or I had trauma back then or whatever. And again, not knocking any of those things. We want people to operate well. We do have experiences that we wish we hadn't had, et cetera. But we do also have sovereignty, have agency about how we care for ourselves, how we love ourselves. Um, and, and we can come with our very like delicious way of being in gratitude and appreciation in coherence, actually, it's called. Um, in the technical term, and, and we create a new reality and a new kind of relationship with everyone around us. And I, I teach this in my programs. And actually, I mean, people have gone to like, literally gone to court, where they were gonna, they were in the wrong, they were going to end up in trouble, maybe, and they go in in that place of gratitude, appreciation, coherence, walk into court, and they say, you know what, we're going to dismiss this, you know, um, just do better next time. Right. Like you can really see outcomes from yeah. operating in that way. Absolutely. Um, I mean, I could, I could probably account dozens and dozens of times in my own life. And I'm sure you could too, where when you shift your mentality and your mindset and your energy and your thinking and your intention from, you know, this terrible thing that's happening to me to, all right, this is happening. What can I do about it? How can I approach this in, in a loving way or in a productive way? How can I 
you know, do the best that I can with what I have and start visioning a better outcome, literally visioning like, okay, well, what's the best result possible? Okay, it could be this. Well, this or better. Let's have this or better. What do I need to do? And we start getting literally, yes, yesterday, I had like three major things happen at the same time. Like, three, you know, notification of three major things, like major tech problems with one of my companies that we're just like dumping tons and tons of money into and tech problems and trying to get this thing solved and built and really increase our reach and impact and, and help a lot more people. But there's like things that I thought were solved that weren't solved. And it was like, okay, it was a huge shock and surprise in the moment. Like this was supposed to be solved like months ago and it's still not solved. This is a huge problem, you know, and I had no idea. At the same time, um, you know, the, the the another thing with the retreat actually that uh, that um, that we have coming up and finding out some details about some things there and was like, oh my gosh, okay, another big problem here we have to solve. And then there's another thing. It was like three big things back to back, and I just it took my energy from like the normal ninety five percent, ninety nine percent of the time where my energy is very positive, you know, very positive outlook, very high energy very ready to, to do whatever I need to do in the day to, to do the work that I do, to um, show up in a good way with my family, with myself. And like my energy was like, just like drop down to like, almost like, um, oh my God, are you kidding me? Like, what am I gonna do? You know, <laughs> it was like, uh, it, it was a feeling of despair. And immediately it was because of my practice and my training and my like having years of, you know, facing life's challenges and knowing what to do. It's like, okay, what do I do? I need to get my mindset right. I need to get my energy going. I need to look at a positive uh, outcome. I need to start thinking of good solutions. I need to start taking action. I need to, that's going from the, it's like the coherence between the left brain and right brain. Okay, the question, what can I do? What creative thing do I need to do? What, you know, what calls can I make and start vi using the visioning and then the action, the left brain, the logical, the, all right, I actually need to do something with this, right? It's like, I need to put this into action. And then boom, 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 boom. Things started solving like really quickly. They're not perfectly solved overnight, but I felt better. My energy was better. I'm a better father to my kids, a better husband to my wife, a better leader in my community and, you know, start seeing some results pretty quickly. So you know, what you're saying is so powerful and so true. It's uh, profound words of wisdom that when we, like we are, we can be, and we actually are the creators of, of our life and our reality. And in many cases, I would say even our destiny in the sense that not necessarily everything that happens to us is in our control. It's certainly not, but how we respond to those things and take action and solve them and find a better path forward is certainly in our control. And that's, that's really, really empowering. Hey, I just want to take a quick second and thank you for listening to this episode. I hope you're enjoying it so far. As a special thank you for tuning into this episode, I want to give you my number one Amazon best-selling book absolutely free. You can go download it right now at becomingcancerfree.com. If you want to learn evidence-based strategies, for helping your body become a cancer-fighting machine for not only cancer reversal, but cancer prevention, go grab a copy of the book. Again, I'm just giving it to you for free. You can go download it at becomingcancerfree.com. All right, let's get back to the show. Yeah, yeah. And I, I really love the examples you gave how 
Um, because we do, I mean, I've experienced that same thing of feeling derailed, you know, like I'm also a very optimistic person generally, and, you know, kind of have all these big visions and ideas. And then, you know, of course, when you want to, when you have a big vision or a big idea, you know, you're going to probably fall on your butt a good number of times, um, in that process, right? Because it's the nature of birthing things into the world that maybe no one knows about, or, you know, something new, et cetera. Um, and it's really possible to get derailed by that. And, um, I, you know, when you brought up despair, you know, that is one of the, um, for me in this past year, even I noticed that I have a choice about falling into that feeling of despair when, you know, you're like, oh, like this isn't working. How am I going to do this? I'm going to be right. And you, and you feel like they're, you're in a lose, lose. Right. And it's like, oh my God, everything is terrible. And, and you can, I mean, it can be things that happen to you, but it can also be, you know, what's happening in the world, right? We can be derailed by any number of things and fall into despair. And, um, and it's really a, and maybe we could even argue that media and social media, which we know a little bit about algorithms and things like that, want us to be activated, to be angry, to be in despair. And that's part of the way headlines are crafted. The way algorithms are crafted is in fact, right, to make us feel like more agitated because that makes us kind of more addicted to media, just as an example. So so there is this potential all the time to fall into that hole, let's say. And I, learned really in this past year, I mean, not that I haven't noticed it in the past, not that I don't have practices around it, but I noticed not like that's a choice. And I have to very consciously make a choice not to be in despair, even when I feel tempted. It is definitely not in my best interest or in my benefit um at all to do that it doesn't help anybody around me to do that and um you know more than that even it's um you know it's really it's kind of disabling so um what i've started to do instead when i feel tempted is to say um i say like wow fascinating this thing that's happening right now how interesting this is and i just like take that moment and, you know, just kind of live in the question, right? Rather than like going into my automatic programming, like, oh, I can't believe this is happening. And like, oh, I'm never gonna be, you know, instead of doing that, like, huh, wow, really interesting, really curious, hmm. Like, and just let myself be in the audience of the situation rather than, in my role, you know, my my role as the character in it, just like taking that moment is sometimes enough to see a little bit of like an eagle eye view or a big picture or or even engage with a question you might not otherwise have even thought to ask. Yeah. Um, so I really value that you brought up the topic of despair because it's like, that's like a pitfall that those are pitfalls all over the place. And, and we really can, you know, we really can avoid them bypass those particular pits, you know, those, 
um, roadblocks when we are conscious and attentive in our daily life. Yeah, that's so powerful. And I love your, your process too, kind of your practice of like, okay, let me just take a second. Very interesting. Very curious. This thing is happening to me right now. Okay. Kind of sit back and be with it for a little bit before, you know, you might ask some questions about it or take some action around it. I think that's an empowering place to, to take action from, you know, and I find for me, it's like, if I get, if I get my body moving, so like I go to the gym or I get some cardiovascular, lift some weights or something, I'll be significantly more empowered as well, right? You get the dopamine flowing, maybe even get a little bit of adrenaline going as you do a high intensity workout. You come out of that and you're like, you can get out of that funk really quickly with, with your physical being and then use that energy to help the mental side go, all right, now what do we need to do to solve this and go into what I like to call a solution-oriented mindset, meaning, look, there's solutions to every problem on the planet. 100% there is a solution. Let me find it. How do I find it? What's the solution? Like, that's, my, that's the mindset that I've trained myself in for the past almost 17 years. And it wasn't easy <laughs> to get to the point where I can turn it on instantly all the time. It took a lot of practice. It took a lot of these challenges every day you know in in many ways of like oh my god i'm stuck in that drudgery and in that despair and then it's like okay i gotta i gotta get to a solution mindset and i'm back in the despair and back in the, and it was like the more you practice the easier it gets and then you see the results of it you know that it that it actually works um yeah. so yeah I'm, I'm i'm glad you shared your process let me ask you a question were you always generally have you always generally been more optimistic in your life? Um, I know you said just in the last year alone, you've made some big kind of leaps and bounds on, on choice around despair and things like that. But even before that, um, even going back to maybe your childhood or, or younger time in your life, were there times in your life where you were just like a very negative person uh, and opt and becoming more optimism, what becoming more optimistic was, was a, a big shift for you and a big practice or have you generally been more optimistic about life uh all of your life <laughs> well you know me nathan pretty well so i feel like you probably know the answer to that question but um <laughs> um but i mean i'm well, a i mean I, can, I i have assumptions but i don't really actually know so i'm really curious actually well, you know, so um, I'm going to answer you two ways. I mean, the first thing is, I mean, I think, yes, I generally am a big, a big ideas person and always kind of visioning into the next thing. So, um, you know, like, it's interesting. I mean, I think I am optimistic. I think I've always been optimistic and realistic. I think I'm like a optimistic realist is how I would kind of think of it. Um, like I'm, I'm pretty discerning. I'm not, I'm not interested in some, you know, big la la idea that doesn't have like a very practical grounding to it. I see through bullshit, if I could say that pretty well. I think it's one of my superpowers. So I'm not just like sort of blindly optimistic. I think I'm optimistic, but I'm also looking at the practicalities at the same time. And I'll answer you from this standpoint also of, um, so you know I'm also, I do ancient astrology. That's sort of become a, 
uh, a pet passion of mine. And, um, you know, people think astrology is something like what you read in a magazine, you know, that little horoscope or whatever, but it's actually an incredibly technical science. And actually in ancient times in Hellenistic times, for example, if you were a doctor, for instance, or an advisor to the government, and you didn't know astrology, you were considered to be like ignorant, like no one would. You were a quack back then if you didn't know astrology. No. Well, right. And, and so I ha ended up having a very uh, like seminal opening experience at a very difficult time in my life, actually in the last decade. Um, it was a very challenging time in my life. And I ended up connected to through very serendipitous means uh one of the most famous astrologers in the world one of the most academic famous astrologers speaks many many languages has written many scholarly books um i had no idea of course that he was this famous person and um he helped me by looking at my chart and i was like oh my gosh like how did he know these things and i was like i want to learn about this and i discovered how technical astrology really is in from certainly ancient times they're very technical ways of knowing, both predicting and understanding contextually a lot of things. So what I would say to you about um, when you ask me if I'm optimistic is Jupiter is right on my midheaven, which is the very top of the chart, sort of how will you be in the world? Um, Jupiter is like, I kind of joke is like Santa Claus. Jupiter is like vision, ideas, optimism, abundance, right? Right on my midheaven. So I think like I have had that quality since the moment I came out on the one hand, but I also am a Scorpio sun. And so I have a very like deep dive nature, very technical. You can't, you know, and, and I've been in the depths. I have like, I don't, I would never pretend that I haven't been in times of despair, that I haven't gone through very hard times in my life um, where I felt confused or lost or all of that, you know? So um, I'm in it with everybody. I don't think I'm like up here and everybody else is down here and that it's my job. You know, I just feel like whatever I know, like I want to offer that guidance, let's say, so that people can find their way, right? Because we're all, we all go through these periods in our lives and sometimes for some people it could be most of their lives feeling like we're walking in the dark. And um, so wherever I can be, you know, kind of a beacon holder, that's what I want to be for people. And um, I think that is like an optimistic role, you know, um, and I teach people to do that. Also, I guide people to become their own beacon holders and beacon holders for other people, because I think we all have that capacity and especially from our difficult experiences. We learn so much. We we get so much medicine of our own original medicine, our own medicine that we're here to offer in the world, whatever that might look like um, through those times we go through the dark. So I don't think, you know, I do think that being able to find our optimism and find that sort of beacon holding role for ourselves is what is joyful, what makes life feel like it has meaning and purpose and connection um, and like we're in flow. And that to me is like what what I'm here to do is to feel alive, right? And to and to live into that. Yeah. Beautiful. I, I'm just literally I'm reminded of just this morning um, 
talking about like, how do we find that optimism when things are challenging and, and what can we do about it? And this morning I woke up, as you know, uh, you, you do Olympic weightlifting, right? I do Olympic weightlifting. I do primarily CrossFit, but I do a lot of Olympic weightlifting as part of it. Um, and, and I love it. Like it's a huge part of my life, uh, training as an athlete. I didn't even find training as an athlete to be a huge part of my life until I was 30. Um, except when I was a kid, you know, growing up to early teenager, I was always an athlete. And then there's a whole big period of time where I didn't, you know, wasn't an athlete and then 30 found CrossFit and just like fell in love. And it's a huge part of has developed me, uh, over the past few years in so many good ways. And, and I look forward to it every day. And so when I wake up like this morning and it's like my shoulder, I can barely move it. There's like stabbing pain. My knees got stabbing pain. I, I don't even know what the heck happened. I just wake up. It's like, I can barely walk. I can barely move my arm. I feel terrible. But you know, in the mornings, I look forward to, to training, to working out, to getting going. And so it's like, you know, talk about, um, it's like, man, I just want to lay down and not do anything. But what do I do? I just go into the gym and start doing what I know how to do. I start mobilizing and rolling out and stretching and doing some physical therapy movements and start getting some blood flowing. And then as I'm doing it, I'm getting a little more positive mindset. It's like, I didn't wake up with this optimism. like, Oh yeah, look at all this pain. Great. Let's go to the gym and we're going to feel great. It was like, just like pulling myself to the gym to get there was, was tough enough. But I knew that if I just started moving, I could, I could, you know, pull myself a little bit out of that funk. And, and as I did, then what, what I often do, and I think this could be a powerful tool for anybody who wants to try it or use it, or maybe many people have experienced this, is then I get out of my own ego. I get out of my own self and I go, how can I use this to help others, right? And so as I'm like starting to feel better, as I'm, I'm moving, I'm getting blood flowing, like the pain's less and less and less. And I'm like, actually, all right, I'm actually moving. I can do some stuff. Then I go, okay, what do I do when I'm experiencing this? Because so many people are not exercising, are not taking care of their physical health, are not going to the gym, are not doing physical things because of chronic pain, because of so much pain. They go, well, I've got the pain, so uh, I can't exercise. I can't walk. I can't jog. I can't do this or that. And then it gets worse and worse and worse and worse, and their health deteriorates year after year, Right. And so it's like, how can I use this experience to help others? So I create a short video and talk about it and walk through exactly what I do and how it works and how actually part of the progression of your chronic pain as you age is generally because you are not exercising, you are not using the full range of those joints, you are not working on gaining more flexibility and mobility and strength in your tendons and ligaments and bones and, and tissues and, and joints. And so it's like, this is the process. And then as I finish, you know, time went by like this and I'm like, Oh man, I feel great. I've still got the pain, but the endorphins have kicked in. So the pain's like 50 or 60% less. I feel like I was productive because I did something uh, for my health in the morning and I made a little video that could help some other people, right? Uh, they're going through the same thing. So it's like getting out of my own, my own um, ego around it, my own self suffering and think about how can I help and serve others? And then it's like, okay, now that just became a fulfilling, meaningful experience. Yeah. Well, you know, I relate to a lot of the things you said, um, 
you know, one of which is I really didn't find my inner athlete, let's say, until I was in my early 40s. And um, that was when I started doing Olympic weightlifting and running, which I hated running when I was like in high school, let's say, like I never ran, like I would, I would do yoga, I liked yoga, but um, I wouldn't have called myself an athlete. And then I started lifting weights right before actually my 42nd birthday. And it was so transformative because I discovered that I was really strong and these aspects of myself that I thought, oh, like, you know, women shouldn't do that or like, and I did get some comments like, oh, you're going to be like big, you're going to be right, all the things that people say to women, I was like, like, wow, like, I was able to very quickly deadlift, you know, almost 200 pounds. And, you know, because they said, oh, it's probably gonna be a while before we can even use the barbell. And then like, within like, I don't know, maybe the next session, they were like, wow, like, you're really strong. And I like discovered this whole real kind of passion that I, that I didn't know I had. And it wasn't a CrossFit gym, although I didn't do CrossFit. I just did the lifting because it's a place, which I really credit CrossFit with this is um, creating a container for women to feel comfortable lifting weights. Um, It's really really cool what's happened actually on that topic of like seeing uh, before I was into CrossFit and I would see a woman with big muscles and I was kind of like, I was honestly very judgmental. Like, Mm -hmm. ah, that's not, that's not hot. That's not sexy. That's not, she looks like a man, you know? And then because of CrossFit and because of my experience with it and because of seeing these women in person who are like, I'm talking about like elite level CrossFit athlete women who are unbelievably strong, very toned, very, you know, um, uh, I mean, six pack abs, you know, solid muscles. Like I am so impressed by actually to be totally transparent, like to me, they are beautiful they are sexy they are hot they're like i'm like that's it's incredible how my own mindset shifted from judgment to just adoration over time of experiencing it and going they're not man muscles they 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 work out and their muscles do that okay so that's exactly the potential that women have just like men have now obviously women and men are not the same in a number of ways but when it comes to the body potential of physicality and strength and and muscle definition and things like that. It's incredibly beautiful. And as you said, like there's a huge thanks to CrossFit for helping, you know, bring this uh, paradigm into the future of really appreciating strong women as, as, as beautiful. Yeah, I think, you know, and what you're really describing, and this sort of is relevant to the topic of well, psychedelics, but really like this way of interrupting these programmings that we have, right? We have all been conditioned to think that we should be a certain way, which could be, you know, if you're a woman, really like thin with little thin arms and, you know, fragile and delicate, or if you're a man, could be, you know, being super built or, you know, never crying or, right, like not showing your feelings or whatever they are. Okay, and I think um, what I'm really interested in as a neurologist, as a spiritual guide, as um, kind of in all the roles that I that I play and with all the hats that I wear is how can we interrupt those stories, those narratives, those 
kind of patterns that we automatically find ourselves in because a lot of that is um, sort of was built into us, maybe intentionally even, right? Like how convenient is it if we think women are supposed to be really thin and weak? <laughs> like, you know, um, it's sort of like, oh, well then they can't do things for themselves. They can't, you know, again, I don't want to like get too sort of distracted by gender roles, but I think it is, um, it's like everybody kind of going to their potential and what's really their calling. And it really often, in order to get to that place of who you really, really are in your most optimal self in that moment involves seeing through old narratives, old stories and old patterns and finding your way out of those old narratives um, and and building something new that's more right for you in this moment in time and always letting that become fresh. It doesn't mean you abandon everything from before. It means you build on everything from before. Um, but allowing yourself to have these pattern interrupts are really, really important. And just what you're describing is such a beautiful example of that, Nathan, to say, like, basically what you just described was, I'm expanding the concept of what's beautiful to me, really, right? It's like, what I thought was beauty, let's just say beauty, right? What I thought was beauty included these things, and now includes this many more things. And it's like, wow, like now, beauty is just you see more beauty in the world <laughs> like than you did right. before. Right. It's like, that's really what it comes down to. And that's like freaking amazing. And if we could all see that kind of beauty um, more so, right? It's it's like, what, a, what an amazing life we would all be living, right? To see beauty everywhere or more. Yeah. So I want to go back to uh, psychedelics a little bit. And your personal experiences with psychedelics. Like, do you have an experience that you can share that was like life changing for you? Um, I mean, you talked a little bit about your experience in Ecuador, but was there something, some plant that you had an experience with or some or multiple experiences with that like, because I know for me, like, like I said, mushrooms saved my life. And I can share that story if we want to. But I want to know from from you, like, have you had some really profound experiences with psychedelics that helped your life tremendously? And then what led you? And then let's go back to your son. Like, after all of that, then, you know, what did you end up learning and, and, and doing for your son and his health? Yeah. Well, so I'll say just to start with, I'm very, I am sparing, very selective about any, um, like, we could say macro dosing experiences. Um, I'm very sensitive to them. And, um, and I feel real sense of I grow a lot of these plants legally. Um, I don't ingest them, but I tend them, I care for them, I work with them. And, um, and therefore, I have a really strong relationship with them. You know, I am someone who really feels a sense of communication with the plants that I grow and care for. And, um, it's a very reciprocal kind of relationship. So I do feel I'm in really close and uh, like intimate relationship with the plant, these plants like ayahuasca, San Pedro, um, and others. 
But I did, yes, have very profound experiences, particularly with San Pedro cactus um, when I was when I was in Ecuador, and um, and it was actually um, I didn't even realize how transformative it was at the time, which is often the case um, that it's just like, wait, what just happened? But um, but it was really interesting. It was very a very gentle experience, and he really came to me and you know i had this whole very like we he told me things right like and this is a very common experience that people do have um with master plants is oh like the mushrooms told me or ayahuasca told me or right where um you know now people are working with things like ketamine or mdma in the same kind of way um let's and those are either legal or much closer to legal in the US, for instance. Um, but nobody's like, oh, the MDMA told me I should, right? It's a very different relationship because these plants are, they are like, you know, really beings and they come with their their personality and their guidance in this very particular way. So I did have an experience like that. And in that experience, I was like pregnant and I gave birth to myself mm. in this, journey and the plant was like now you know we're family and now we're going to work together and then i want to say something i did have this whole beautiful experience and i wrote about it and everything and then i left ecuador and i really forgot about it <laughs> and i don't want to say forgot i was like oh yeah that happened but i didn't like really have the support or guidance and maybe the wherewithal, and maybe I wasn't ready. I mean, you know, all of those things can be true at the same time um, to really integrate that and say, what does this really mean? Like, what does that mean? We're gonna be working together now. Like, I just kind of continued my life and it was definitely, it became very different very quickly, um, which is another thing that can happen when you work with master plants is, you know, you change and then your life changes. And so this is one of the reasons not to say that they're just always safe. I think, as I think people already can hear, you really have to come with respect, reverence, and I think preparation, and hopefully guidance afterwards, right? And being held during. I mean, there's a lot around this, which is why I think ceremony, whatever that looks like, it doesn't mean you're going to Ecuador. It doesn't mean, right? You could be in a, you could be in a hospital, in a clinic, and and have a really meaningful ceremony, and you can be in an indigenous environment and not have ceremony even if it's supposed to be right it, that can happen so but i do think all of that is so important but um part of why i say beware and really prepare yourself is that you can change in a significant way and i wouldn't say it's for the worse it's just you change and then your life can change because things that might have been tolerable to you before that you were like ah. Eh, you know, this is just the way it is. It's like, you can't do that anymore, you know? And that could be really toxic things like addictions that are really holding you back and destroying your health. It can be relationships that maybe you thought you wanted to be in and then you can see how they're not serving you and how they're hurting you, um, right? I mean, there's a lot of things that can come up from these kinds of experiences. And that did happen for me I would say somewhat more gradually, um, but 
but not not that gradually. <laughs> so, you know, it's important, I think, to um, understand that these experiences really do open your eyes to yourself and to things around you in ways that you may not expect. Yeah. Um, and your life might change. And, you know, I've had people say to me, I really, really think I want to go to an ayahuasca ceremony, but I'm probably, I'm probably not going to want to stay in my marriage afterwards. Mm. So I'm not going to go right now. Interesting. And it is interesting, right? Because there are these, it's sort of like, um, when I work with people, there are these ways in which like we, it's like we already know certain things about our lives, but we really don't want to. Don't want to face it because it's, because it's so challenging and scary. Yeah. So are you someone that's like, and I actually don't know, I, I mean, I, I have a sense, but are you someone that's um, only done a handful of psychedelic experiences or have you done like dozens or hundreds? I've definitely not done hundreds. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and I, you know, so I'll just say, I think there are a lot of ways to engage with these medicines um, and these teachers. Like I said, you know, for many people, it's like either you're having, you know, the journey in this like cannonballs and fireworks and visions <laughs> and, you know, you're vomiting into the bucket and all of this like kind of very big dramatic experience. Um, like ten, 10 years of therapy in like one evening kind of right thing. kind of that idea and um and then there's kind of what we call so that's like a shamanic dose but there's actually what we have as like um and this is this is traditional way of looking at it there's the kind of what they call the aphrodisiac dose which is kind of in between the um shamanic dose right that boom, explosions kind of way and, and the microdose. So there's something in between. And that is, they call kind of the aphrodisiac dose, which is you're, you're altered, you're seeing things, but you're not like kind of in this out of control place, let's say. Um, and very often that's like what the healer will, will take that amount, not a big, you know, wild amount. And in some cultures, I just want to also add, um, in some in some communities, you know, the the healer, the curandero or, you know, wherever you are, is the only one who takes the medicine to look into you and see what what's making you sick. Right. It's not like um, it's not the other way around always. So I just want to say that. Um, but but then so there's that aphrodisiac dose and then there's the um, medicinal dose, which we could also call like a microdose. And um, and that's non psychedelic in the sense that you're not altered to the point that you can't operate in your daily life. It might make you feel different. You might feel more like open, more heart opening. You might notice things. You might feel more creative. You might see synchronicities that you might not otherwise see. It might be easier for you to do some of the things like we talked about of like taking that pause rather than just like falling into despair right like those kinds of um those kinds of things can can happen with a microdosing experience and you know there are all kinds of medicinal 
benefits, which we can talk about as well if you want to, but um, all of these ways are ways to engage with the medicine. So I've engaged in many different ways like that. And then there's quantum dosing, which is actually a kind of newer technology, but is a way of, um, it's like a vibrational medicine where it's made in ceremony in the presence of the plant with the help of the plant, but without destroying or taking actual plant material and putting it into the medicine. And that's like a really beautiful and interesting way to work with the plant. And I noticed that quantum dosing was something possible because people would reach out to me sometimes and say, I want to, I'm interested in microdosing or I'm interested in macrodosing. And they would schedule a time to talk to me about it. And, um, and as soon as they did that, their life would start to change. And I would watch this sort of unfold. Maybe they would never even ingest the plant, but I would see that they were in relationship with the plant. They're, they would be hearing, you know, I really want, I really like, I'm interested in ayahuasca. Can we talk about that? And then it would be like ayahuasca is in their life and they're starting to make the changes and do the things and they never even had to ingest the plant. So, so I would have them as the energy, just being in the presence of the energy of the plant can make some shifts for people. It's a relationship like everything. I mean, I could tell you from literally the level of our microbiome and our mitochondria all the way up that we are co-creating with each other. And um, there's no fixed thing. There's no like, you have to do this to get this. It's just almost not ever true. You can experience in this case, you know, people talk um, in indigenous communities. It's not like, it's not like, oh, ayahuasca, the compounds in ayahuasca do X, Y, Z. Nobody talks about it like that. They talk about the spirit of ayahuasca or the mother of ayahuasca is the medicine. You're in relationship with the mother of ayahuasca. You should bring something out into the forest for the mother of ayahuasca to show her that you are ready to work with her. And so that's what I'm finding and was finding with people that they were kind of coming with their offering in a sense. And the mother of ayahuasca, the spirit of ayahuasca, let's say, was like, yes, like we're ready. You're ready for me. I'm ready for you. And so quantum dosing is actually this beautiful way to, you know, what I call it is ceremony in a bottle. So there's in the making of it, there's medicine songs, there's sacred smoke, there's, you know, stones, there's the plant itself. Um, and actually even music of the plants with the, these devices that really play the music from the, from the plants leaf, you know, maybe some people know about this technology, all of those things are part of the quantum medicine. And we know, right, we now know when there's beautiful science around how DNA can imprint in the right uh, frequency setting, DNA can imprint into liquid. And you can actually see that that DNA is imprinted into the liquid uh, simply because it's in the right frequency environment. The water is next to the, the thing, right, that you are uh, kind of extracting the DNA, but not destroying the product, not destroying, let's say, the plant in this case. And these plants are being overconsumed now, and only I think will be more so um, as this becomes more and more decriminalized, as it becomes more and more popular and mainstream. You know, there's 
you know, there's a lot of mushrooms, there's a lot of ayahuasca, there's a lot of San Pedro, but um, are they being grown in a good way? Are they being preserved in a good way, et cetera, et cetera? Are we going to experience their medicine or their malice, right? It all depends on how we're coming. So quantum drops, quantum dosing is a really nice way, I think, to engage with the mother of the medicine, right? The spirit of the medicine and that vibrational energy and the ceremony of it and experience those changes and that guidance and that support. Um, and no harm comes to the plant, you know? Hey, I just want to pause a second and ask you, are you enjoying this episode so far? Are you getting good value from this content? If so, then I know you're going to absolutely love healing Life At HealingLife.net, you get exclusive and premier access to hundreds of the top world's doctors, experts, cancer conquerors, and survivors, exclusive interviews that I have done with all these experts and doctors uh, that are not available for free online. They're only available at HealingLife.net. So not only do you get access to all of those, but you actually get to speak with these doctors and experts and ask them any question you want about health and healing. And this is available exclusively to Healing Life members. You can try it out for free. Go to healinglife.net and you can start your free trial there. And uh, whether you're interested in learning more about detox or cancer, diet and nutrition and nutritional science, about diabetes, about heart disease, autoimmune disease, anti-aging, longevity, all of these topics are covered in depth and more are continuing to be added at Healing Life. And again, you get to talk to these doctors yourself. So I invite you to set up a free trial at healinglife.net. And I hope to see you over there. Now, let's get back to the show. You gonna, are you going to bring some to our retreat next month? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> no, it's really because um, you, you just like you just you have a new product line where you're making these, right? I do. I do. And, um, it's fascinating. It's really it's cool. Actually, really powerful medicine on like, there was a, there's a company that made these patches. I don't know if you know about it, that, that literally takes the energy of like a whole bunch of like natural anti-inflammatory and antioxidant, high rich antioxidant inflammatory plants and infuses energy into these patches. And then you put the patch on an inflamed or painful area in your body and they do like thermography and they look and they show literally how like that inflamed area, which would show up as very red hot, uh, basically goes back to like green and blue where you know mm -hmm. the inflammation isn't there anymore. And all they did, I say all, but all they did, there's no actual plant matter or material in the patch. It's a patch with the energy of the plants on the patch that you put on your body and you get the benefits. So the science is coming out around this and in a lot of different ways um, and how it's showing up uh, in how we can use, you know, the application of it for health and wellness, I think is pretty fascinating. Um, yeah. Just transferring that energy into ourselves. Yeah, I think it's really interesting. Well, it is really beautiful, and I'm very lucky that the person who is, um, who bottles this for me, so I make the original medicine, and then he does the bottling in his facility, so he said, I know you're going to want things to be in a particular way, so just show me what you need, 
And so I made this sort of little sacred space, this altar, and I sent it to him with a picture and instructions. And he said, oh, I'm going to build a table because he's also, of course, a master carpenter. I'm going to build a table and this will be permanent in our production area. And then, you know, he plays music while it's being bottled and all of this stuff. It's amazing. Um, but in addition to that, he's actually is a scientist. He has his own company, does his own research. And um, he was like, he's so excited to measure the outcomes Ooh. with this um, quantum medicine, you know, with quantum drops. And so we've actually started designing studies that we're going to be able to look at the benefits. And he has done this with other companies that do this kind of like vibrational or energetic medicine um, that have products because he's got a lab. So he's able to really do that. And, um, you know, he called me just the other day and was like, I have so many ideas of how we can do this. And we like totally just talked about how we can measure it. Because like I said, I do have these sort of like ideas, right? And these sort of like, vision visions of what things could be but i also am not interested in like la 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 right i want it to be like practical beneficial i want to be able to show that yeah i i think we have that in common it's like the uh, the more i learn and dive into any kind of spiritual path um or any kind of healing path or any kind of, you know, health topic. It's like, I want to understand it. I want to know it. I want to know as much about it as I can, but then I also want to make it applicable and, and shareable and make it uh, accessible. Right. And so, I mean, I've sat um, at the feet of what many people would call spiritual masters, you know, and, and listened to them and studied with them for, for years. And, it's like there are some of them who take you around in a big confusing circle <clears throat> and and there's some benefit to that uh with their teachings where you're always kind of questioning what's going on what's actually being said what is he even the hell is he talking about kind of thing you know and and for me it was like i got at some point i was just like all right enough of that like I, I want to know, like, just take me straight to the truth, you know, and, and the truth, I believe the truth of something should be very straightforward, should be very simple. Now, it may be complex. There may be multiple sides to it and multiple facets, but it, it should be pretty straightforward, you know, in the sense that um, I can understand it and I can take something complex and complicated and simplify it, which is what which is what I do as an independent researcher, you know, for cancer and for cancer patients is like, I'll go and read thousands of pages of, you know, uh, sometimes confusing scientific literature and, you know, opposing viewpoints and things like that, and then consolidate it and then make it as simple as possible for people to understand. It's just something, uh, I don't know if I'm, you know, I'm good at it. It's something I, I enjoy doing um, because I want to be able to understand something simply, even if it is really complicated and complex. And, um, you know, I think we're in a time where that's really needed, where it's really needed that people share wisdom from a place of, of simplicity. Well, I think that I would say, um, I, I feel yes. And about what you're saying, because I think um, 
you know, I think that those spiritual teachers who sort of can take you in circles. And when I say like spiritual masters or like the, these gurus, I always feel a little, I always feel a little reticence around that because um, there's a lot, sometimes there can be a lot of ego, a lot of, right. There's a lot of potential uh, when people have that kind of power to also, um, I don't want to say abuse it. I do think it is, it can be abuse it, but also just wield it in ways that might not be always in the benefit and interest of, of everyone else. And so, um, so it is tricky, but I do think that part of what the spiritual path really asks of us is to get out of that idea that, um, we can just go from point, you know, straight from point A to point Z, like, whoop, you know, um, at least this has been my experience is every time I think I'm sort of on this trajectory where I'm like, oh, yes, this, you know, now I know how to, it's like, there's always something that's going to turn me upside down along the way, at least once, at least many times often, you know, and I find that the more I really progress in my understanding of that, the more I just kind of expect that, like, like, I think that idea that things can be like really linear um, is just, it's not wrong. I think it they can be, but often to get to that straightforward place, it takes a lot of winding and upside down and up and down and all of that. So I'm like, I really have a lot of respect for the being in the question. I have a lot of respect for the not knowing. And, and in my mind, um, there's something really valuable about discernment and being rational about things. And there's also something really valuable and sacred about mystery and things we can never know. Uh, questions that will always remain questions. And that's actually like, I think, a really important part of, of life. And for us to really be in that place of humility, I mean, everything that we think we understand right now, you know, and I think most scientists agree, like, at least half of it is wrong. <laughs> and then the rest of it is going to develop differently than what we think. Yeah. And that's kind of beautiful in a way, right? Like we want certainty. We're comfortable with certainty. We've been conditioned to think certainty means we're superior in some way. But in fact, there's a lot we don't know. You know, I mean, I don't know. I don't know if I want to really get into this topic. It's certainly not any expertise that I have. But on one of the calls I had with my my community, with my students, we People wanted to talk about like, are there aliens? And I thought it was such an interesting, we weren't, like I said, I don't have like a specific position on it. Although, I mean, it would kind of shock me if we were really like the only life in the entire universe, but I'm not like married to one particular idea around it. But we just like had this very kind of open discussion about it. And it was like, so interesting, so, so beautiful, so fascinating just to hear where people are with it. And, you know, I love questions. I'm willing to really entertain anything. Am I going to like, am I going to tout it as truth? Am I going to go out and promote it? I mean, no, though there are things that feel very true to me that those are things that I really feel I can support that, you know, I'm going to talk about in that way. But living into the question is very much to me, the spiritual path. And like, 
I, I'm learning, I will say, to respect that kind of being an expert in not knowing and like where we really are living in a lot of the paradox, yeah. you know? Yeah, no, that's, that was beautifully said. And you just reminded me of like a while back, a number of years ago, it's like, as I kind of was um, a few years into, uh, I'd say my spiritual journey, so that started when I was like 18, 17, 18, mm-hmm. 17, 18 years ago. Um, after like five years, I think, I kind of felt like I knew it all, you know? <laughs> it was like, and I was being asked to like teach all over the country and I was writing blogs and articles and books and I was teaching retreats and conferences. And it was like this, it was this, it was like what I call spiritual ego, right? It was um, like, didn't, seemed like I had an ego, but there was the ego that was there behind it all that was like, oh yeah, I know all of this and this religion over here is wrong and this is wrong and this and that. And then I had some big awakenings uh, and realized I didn't know anything at all. It was like, I knew very little actually. And there's still so much for me to learn. And I feel that way today um still and i and i hope i feel that way for the rest of my life really that being in that humble place of okay yeah i might know some things and have some experience and have some some ideas and thoughts and hopefully some wisdom to share but there's still so much more for me to discover about my own beliefs about my own viewpoints about uh, religion spirituality this life the afterlife the next life that all of it you know all of it and even I've spent, you know, 15 years researching heavily health and the science behind health and healing. And it's like, I'm still discovering and learning more. And I'm sharing this because I went, I was, um, uh, I had a friend from the gym mentioned to me, well, basically they invited me to a Bible study group last night. Um, and they're primarily Christian and, uh, I think Protestant primarily, you know, Christian, they had the, the Old Testament, the New Testament, and, and they meet once a month. And there's, you know, five or six guys, seven young guys from the gym who get together and have a Bible study. And they didn't invite me like, oh, hey, we should invite this guy. They didn't have that feeling towards me. Actually, a friend of mine was like, oh, I didn't, he was talking with somebody else about it. And he's like, oh, I didn't want to leave you out. I know, I know that's not really your thing. That's the reason I didn't invite you. But just didn't want you to think we were talking about something without you. We were talking about our Bible study. And I was like, I was like, well, why do you think I wouldn't be interested? Well, I don't know. You're, you know, just have some perception of me that um, more maybe spiritual guy over here or whatever, and don't believe in all this. And I was like, I'd love to go, you know, like I've, I've read quite a bit of the Bible and actually have an interesting, I'd say I'd have an interesting relationship with Jesus. And, um, and I think there's, there's a lot of good in it. And I said, I'd love to join you guys. So they actually invited me. So I went last night and, you know, it's so interesting to see how close minded you can be on one particular thing and have no awareness or acceptance of all this other realities. Like I've been really blessed because I've been so open minded spiritually 
um, to study, you know, to chant with the Hare Krishnas and study with Hindus, to spend many, many, many hours meditating with, you know, Buddhist monks and Zen masters and, you know, many indigenous ceremonies with Native Americans and on and on and on and, and a lot of different traditions and spiritual practices and religious and religions with an open mind. Not that this one is the right one, this one's the wrong one, all of that, but having an open mind. And so I think I have kind of a... Um, a little bit of an of an open uh, acceptance of all of it that there's good in all of it, and in that conversation there was there was someone who was like, "Well, in this book, if any part of this book is wrong, he's, he's holding the Bible. If there's one error in this at all, then you then I can't believe any of it. So I have to believe all of it as fact, as the Word of God, written you know written by man, inspired by God." Um, otherwise, it's all false. And I'm like, exactly. Like, it doesn't, exactly in the sense that we don't have to have that extreme of a belief in something to uh, to understand its depth, to understand its wisdom. And in fact, I actually think there's a lot of truth and wisdom in that book. And I also think there's some some fallacy and some error and some men writing out of ego and control and things like that in the book as well doesn't mean you have to throw the whole thing out you know it's like i look at it with an open mind and say okay what in here is wisdom and what is divinely inspired and what is good in it and what is it that's maybe more just coming from man's ego or self-control or whatever it might be and that allows me i feel like to to gain you know, a lot out of that. Whereas from his perspective, it was like, you believe it all, or you believe nothing. And it was very strict in the sense that, you know, you, you either accept this, accept Jesus into your life and go to heaven, or you don't, you go to hell. And I'm like, like that's a pretty narrow viewpoint. So it was, a, I actually had a great time because I had a great participation. I asked them a lot of questions, shared some ideas. They had some interest in, in what I had to share and I find experiences like that to be incredibly valuable, where you can go into something where maybe people are very close-minded about something, but you go in there open-minded. And, and I couldn't have done this even 10 years ago, I don't think, you know, not at that level where, like, there wasn't judgment and things like that, like, I'm right and you're wrong. It was like, no, actually, I want to hear and learn from each of you and from this book. And what about this? Did you think about this? Did you, what about the people today who are actually healers today, just like Jesus was that can that can use their hands and energy to heal people do you know about them oh no we've never heard about them you never heard about people like that there's thousands of them why aren't they on cnn every night i'm like that's a conversation for a whole other time but <laughs> yeah it was just really fascinating you know experience last night i'm still kind of processing it but well you know it's interesting i mean i'll bring up something a little different but similar for me and probably will be maybe I don't want to assume but might be a little challenging for you just based on what I know about what you do but I actually had a kind of interesting um, challenge of my preconceived ideas um, so I don't know if you know but I was a vegetarian for a very long time from when I was 15 um, to when I was in my 20s until I basically was like pregnant with my daughter. Um, I, I was vegetarian and um, it kind of started interestingly on um, like a dare from a boyfriend. And, um, but I was really into it. 
And that, that was like what I did for quite a long time. And then I ate meat again a little bit and I actually um, got very involved in like, you know, pasture raised long before people were talking about pasture raised meat. And, um, you know, I actually like even went to like a slaughterhouse and like found people raising animals in a very uh, humane way, et cetera. I was, I got very involved, same reason, because I was like, I want to know what's really happening. Um, and then, you know, but I'm, I'm obviously, and anyone who's read my book, The Dirt Cure, which I talk a lot about nutrition in, I'm very, uh, I, I think, you know, a vegetable-based diet is tremendously important and, um, and have always eaten a very, you know, uh, primarily vegetable-based diet. And, um, and then I, you know, in the last couple of years started to have this really, speaking of pain, and I thought of this when you brought up your chronic pain, um, I started to have this pain, which it took forever for me to even understand what it was. It turned out it was like, you know, an IT band probably problem and I was running, you know, so that was one of the things that became like a real joy for me. And like you say, when I feel confused, I call, I say, when I feel like a noodle, right? That way I wake up, I'm like, oh my God, I'm feeling bad. Or I feel like, you know, I just feel like, um, for me going for a run or lifting weights is really important. And I, and I would go for a run and I'd be in agony, agony. Like I couldn't continue to run. It felt like I was like hurting my own body. And, um, and it was terrible, you know, because this, and I run in the woods, so I'm in nature. So it was like my time in nature. It was my time moving my body. It was my time sort of all of these creative things moving forward, you know, is like a really great way to move through problems. Um, this has actually been demonstrated in science that forward motion actually helps you make forward motion in your life. So running for me was all of these things. And I was in absolute agony when I would go running. And I tried all kinds of things like, you know, I was doing stretching, I was doing red light therapy, I was doing um, all kinds of herbs and salves, I was just doing everything under the sun. Um, I did rolfing and heller work and went to the osteopath and went, I mean, I did a lot, a lot of things in the midst of the pandemic. So it was interesting, an interesting time to have to delve into this. And um, Finally, I thought, I wonder if this is related to oxalates, which as many may know or not know, oxalates are found in a lot of vegetables, in nuts, in seeds, um, you know, and people call them anti-nutrients. And I mean, there's all kinds of conversations we could go off into, but, but um, I have had a history of kidney stones when I was pregnant and I've had three children. So I had some kidney stones at that time. I just thought, gosh, I wonder if it's actually all the vegetables, nuts, and nuts that I'm eating that could be doing this. Um, and I thought, you know what? I'm going to try doing a carnivore diet for a month and see what happens. And um, day one, 24 hours in, after 24 hours, my pain was gone, gone. It had been a year and a half of agony gone in one day and also like anxiety levels came down. My sleep came down. I was suddenly able to lift like I had made, I made huge kind of unheard of leaps in my, in my um, PR, like my top lift that I could do. 
uh, all in the first few days and week of being on this diet, which I, I couldn't continue because it was, it's like really, really sad for me to not eat vegetables. Mm -hmm. Um, like I, I was really like this, this is just people who like me would be like, yeah, burgers and brisket and like, you know, steak, it's like the best. And I was like, I hate this, you know? Um, but, but it was fascinating to me because I could only in my mind, you know, what I'd taught, what I knew, what I believed, what I loved was to eat in this one particular way that, um, it turned out was probably at least in some way, you know, and who knows? I mean, I certainly wouldn't live like that or recommend that people live like that forever, but it was fascinating. I did that for a month and then I moderated how many oxalates I would take in. And I mean, I knock wood here, but the pain never came back now. Like, you know, I do my 5k. I love, you know, I have that back in my life and it's like everything to me to have that. And, um, it required me thinking outside of a belief system Mm -hmm. that I deeply, deeply was attached to. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's sort of interesting kind of what you're describing, right. Is like, um, and it's funny because I got into a conversation with another health friend of mine who, who's not, he's not vegan. He's not vegetarian. I mean, he's, you know, but he was very, like, he heard I was, I had, he hated is what I would say that I got better with the carnivore diet and told me, well, you didn't try this. You didn't try. And I'm like, yes, I did try that. Yes. I like, he was so agitated in this conversation. I wasn't like proselytizing. I was like, you know, it's so interesting. This happened because it was not what I expected, but I thought, let me just try it. Cause I'm kind of desperate. So it's sort of, you know, like we have that way, whether it's spiritual beliefs, whether it's beliefs about health, whatever it might be. I do think it's like, I think what we have in common in what we're discussing and that you and I both do this, I think I'm being friends with you. I know is, is we're always interested in, in thinking about what else there is or asking questions or being in that, well, what if we tried this, right? Like, I love that. I think that makes life more interesting. And, and we find, sometimes we really do find answers that, that help us that transform our lives. And like, for me, I mean, if you would have said that's going to be what makes you feel better, I mean, I would have been like, you know, get out of here. <laughs> what's your what's your, uh, what's your diet like right now? So you have, uh, yeah, what's it what's it look like now? So you did carnivore for like a month, felt better, and then kind of, and then you got low oxalate diet, uh, went on to low oxalate. But what does that look like for you now? Well, it means like I'll eat very few nuts. But, um, I, and I, and I try to make sure they're soaked, uh, so that they're some of it. Right. Um, I don't eat a lot of high oxalate vegetables or even really a lot of like, so it's interesting when you're, and I've seen this actually just the oxalate question. Um, I've seen in a lot of pediatric neurology and adult neurology cases where like, um, it affects kids behavior. It affects their pain levels it affects a lot of like mitochondrial function kind of things so their energy levels their their thinking their focus so it's really interesting and i can tell based on diet right like i'll just tell people you know okay tell me their diet or tell me your diet um and the hard thing about 
Oxalates is they're actually found in a lot of the things we think are the most healthy. Like if you're having a low oxalate diet, you're going to be better off probably having white rice over having brown rice, just as an example, right? And it's so, so sometimes the people who come to me um, are, you know, natural food chefs or nutrition. I mean, so they're coming with these beliefs and they're just like, you know, that same thing, like, get out of here. I can't believe that. But um, but for me, I eat few nuts. I don't eat like spinach. Um, I'm minimal with things like berries. I'm minimal with root vegetables. Um, I'm, I'm just quite careful about avoiding, and I actually compiled like a whole list because there's a lot of conflicting information out there. So for myself, my patients, I kind of have a list of like good choices, you know, and potentially worse choices. Um, so I do still eat a pretty protein focused diet, um, but I definitely have Pro protein meaning like animal protein focused diet. Yeah, well, so like, for example, I keep chickens. So we have eggs. I don't keep chickens for in me. New York, in New York, you have chickens. That's funny. In New I have 15 <laughs> chickens. That's awesome. And um, some people now are like, wow, you're so lucky you keep chickens because, you know, eggs are so expensive. And I'm like, keeping chickens is expensive. Unless you're keeping like a thousand chickens, I've probably been paying way more than what oh, everyone else pay more. Wants. I used to have chickens. <laughs> you, pay, you pay more for eggs, yeah, with your own chickens than you do buying from the store, for sure. But... <laughs> you this goes back to relationship like i give i know that we're in this like reciprocal relationship where i give to my chickens and like they come to me they want to be picked up they they have names like i'm in relationship with them so like when they give me eggs and i'm giving them like scraps and treats and you know petting them and we have this nice thing um i don't feel the same way that I would if I was just like going to the store and plunking down a ton of money for eggs that I don't know where they come from. Might say nice things on the package, but like when you do kind of the deep dive, you discover they're not really living that well. And I did, you know, a lot of that kind of research when I wrote The Dirt Cure. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I believe it. Um, you know, on the oxalate question, I've done a lot of research on, on oxalates uh, over the last few years specifically. And one of the things I found out is if you, it, there's about 5% of the population that we know of so far that is much more prone to like kidney stones and things like that than, than about 95%. So about 5%, which is a lot of people, it's like millions of people, right? That are more prone to kidney stones and, and have a higher negative response to oxalates uh, in general than um, a lot of people who, aren't necessarily prone. I'm not saying they're the, if you have kidney stones, you're the only ones that are prone to maybe some, you know, negative, some deleterious effects from oxalates. But generally that's the research that I've found that I think is pretty interesting. And what I've also found is uh, for people who, who still want those, you know, because a lot of the oxalate high foods are also like, according to the research, the most anti-cancer foods, the most foods associated with longevity and neuroprotection and heart disease protection, right? The brassica family, the vets, the, the dark leafy greens, the beans, all of these things. And so I did research into like, well, how do you, how are these oxalates, what are the benefits of the oxalates? Because actually oxalates have, they're getting a bad rap right now online. Uh, if you follow some people saying oxalates are terrible for you, anti-nutrients, et cetera, pull out minerals, all that. But 
there's really interesting research on the incredible benefits of oxalates as too, oxalates in our body as well. So I think that's kind of like looking at the whole picture of things, trying to understand things from the whole picture, right? And how things might affect certain people differently. And so I thought, well, yeah, how do you, how, how do you reduce oxalates if you still want the foods in your diet? And, and surprisingly, so you can reduce the amount of oxalates in the foods by cooking them like beans, for example, you can cook out almost all the oxalates. If you cook the beans really fully to the point, they're very soft, right? Which is interesting. Uh, the green vegetables, you can soak them in. There's a method. You might know the method. I forget the name at the moment, but you soak them and then you boil them. Um, and then you, you know, eliminate the water and you can actually remove like 70 plus percent of oxalates from like your green vegetables. So people are worried about oxalates, but still want to eat that way. There are things you can do to really reduce them as well. Um, and you may just need to reduce the amount of oxalates in your diet like you did. Um, well, I mean, you know, for example, I still eat a lot of cruciferous vegetables. Like that's like one of the primary foods I eat, but like most kale, I really can't. Or I, not, I can't, but I just don't eat most kale because it's actually, you know, and I think paleo diet, which is sort of like what I more adhered to before, it's a very high oxalate diet, much higher actually than what most people um, might have normally done. So like bone broth can be very high in oxalates, berries, dark chocolate, um, you know, obviously like uh, certain kinds of greens, especially kale, but like Tuscan kale is actually very low comparatively in oxalates just for example mustard greens are okay like there's so there's a lot of um you know i eat broccoli i eat cauliflower i eat cabbage like those are all completely low oxalate and very um you know and i do have like a square of dark chocolate you know i mean i'm not like i'm not i'm not like a huge chocolate person in general i like cacao but like i'm not you know i don't need to like pig out on chocolate but you know, I think, and like I said, I do have a little bit of nuts because I love nuts and I think they're really healthy and it's great for me before I have beans don't always like, I don't always love how my body feels when I have greens, but I, I mean beans, but I do feel good when I have nuts. So like, I do have a little bit of nuts because I, I like them and because I seem to be able to tolerate that. Um, what I want to say about tolerating oxalates, just for example, it also is known um, and I wrote a whole article about this actually about the microbiome and oxalates um, is there it's well known in fact that we've lost a lot of the flora oxalobacter flora in particular but certain lactobacillus as well that are um, that help us break down oxalates and metabolize oxalates in healthy ways so you know I happen to have grown up uh, with lots of ear infections as a little kid and you know I was born in a time and raised in a time where antibiotics were like the be all end all. So I was on, you know, I had tubes a lot of times. I was on antibiotics a lot, like basically until I was 12, I was on antibiotics many times a year. Yeah. So, Same you know, here. all it of those screws things. Up. Screws up your digestive tract like crazy. But I will also say that my dad, um, you know, who was indigenous and then, you know, a refugee, um, and his sister too, he was one of 13, but two of them at least had very severe kidney stones in their lives. And they were not brought up like that. They were brought up, you know, they might've been in poverty for a significant period of time, but they certainly weren't getting tons of antibiotics or anything like that. 
Um, and my dad actually lost one of, you know, had a, a kidney. They think probably he just had undetected, you know, maybe kidney stone that caused major kidney damage on one side. So he really only was functioning with one kidney. And he died when I was young, not because of that. But um, so, so for me, like, it makes sense, right? Looking at the context of that, that it might not just be about flora. It might also be about maybe more genetic things or, you know, others. So, um, so for me, it makes sense to, on the one hand, I'm always going to keep looking at the literature on anything, what's coming up and what's coming out around things like flora or things we can do to, right? Like, also, if you're eating more calcium, when you have oxalates, then the calcium will bind the oxalates um, and help you excrete excess oxalates so they won't necessarily cause problems. But oxalates can cause pain syndromes. Um, so people might not realize, like I've seen people with vulvodynia, right, which is like pain with intercourse or just like vaginal pain. And it's, and it's actually strangely well known in that community among even doctors that are not kind of integrative or nutritionally minded, that oxalates can be a cause of that. Um, and a lot of kind of chronic pain conditions and like MS and other stuff can be activated um, because of those things. So like, again, it's a, it's like always being open, you know what I mean? And not saying these are all bad or these are all good, just like with psychedelic plants, just like with people, right? You can be a really good person and also be a person with a lot of flaws and challenges. And like, there is this sort of like, how can we show up for all of this complexity um, and keep leaning into the questions, you know, just as with oxalates. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just on that topic and on what you said a little earlier about like just in the last couple of years, uh, how, you know, some big things have shifted for you. So I, I transitioned to hundred percent raw vegan in 2010, I think. And my wife and I, and when my daughter was born, we did that for a full year, raw vegan. And then after the year, then I just stayed vegan. Um, except I would do, you know, honey, bee pollen, and once in a while, some eggs. So basically that way up until a few years ago. And then I pretty much my, every time I would eat an egg, I just, and we had chickens too. So it was like, I'd have, I don't know, a few eggs a week or something like that for a while, kind of off and on. And then I'd have some eggs and like, I would just feel disgusted. So I was like, ah, no more eggs. I tried an egg the other day and same thing. I got that disgusting, like kind of thing. And I was like, okay. I was like, I wonder if eggs, you know, I might have an egg once in a while. So I tried it like with an open mind, you know, um, a few, just a couple years ago, I was significantly more close-minded though, when it came to diet for health and longevity and healing, primarily because of literally the hundreds, if not thousands of research papers that I've read, have read on cancer, neurodegenerative disease, heart disease, diabetes, etc., and the plant-based diet in its approach to helping heal uh, those diseases, the hundreds, over 400 hours of interviews I've done with many world-leading doctors and scientists and, and integrative cancer oncologists who have put people on a plant-based diet and literally helped them reverse cancer, stage mm -hmm. four cancers, incurable cancers, 
on the plant-based diet, reverse the cancer, reclaim their health, etc. The people in my own coaching program who have done the same thing, so I started following your advice a year ago, and today I'm cancer-free, and that's a plant-based diet, organic, whole food, nutrient-dense, very diverse, right? So when someone would say the carnivore diet or something like that just a couple of years ago, I was like more close-minded about it than I am now. And I started following <clears throat> um, people like Paul Saladino and people online who are promoting, you know, doctors who are very intelligent promoting the carnivore diet. And, and watching their videos and, and looking into the research of what they're claiming, because I want to know, like, with an open mind, like, is this real? Like, why are they saying these things when everything I've seen up to this point for over a decade shows the exact opposite? Why are they saying these things that carnivore diet can heal this and is good for you and meat's good for you, etc. And so, you know, watching all of that with an open mind. And I have to say, I'm not convinced yet that a carnivore diet for humanity, uh, for any large number of people, for any long period of time, is a good diet. Uh, I'm not convinced of that at all, you know. Yeah, uh, I agree. But totally open to if that's what somebody does and it helps them how who am i to deny that you know what i mean like oh no that's bad for you you can't do that it's like it helps you how can i deny that it, that's right. the truth i totally appreciate respect that and i don't i really don't care what people eat i used to care i used to be very like you need to eat this way to save the planet and for animals and, da, da, da. and it's like you eat however you want you know i'm going to share what what i believe to be true that i have seen helped many many thousands of people and you can do that or not. It really doesn't matter. Like, it's not up to me, you know? It's up to each individual person to find what works for them. Um, but I am I am more open today to the fact that, and, and for different reasons too, for the fact that someone could go on a carnivore diet for a month and feel better. There's a lot of things that could cause that, right? It could be one thing in your diet, which I found out, corn was something that was terrible for me and was causing me suffering for years. And I had no idea it was corn. Yeah. The last like seven years. And when I found out it was corn, I got on my diet. Those problems, knock on wood, have gone away and have stayed away to this day. Hopefully they never come back. But it was like literally suffering from one thing. Sometimes it's one plant, right? Sometimes it's one grain. Sometimes it's... so. You know, I like the elimination diet for people who are having challenges figuring out. Maybe they're having major digestive challenges or things like that. For the, elim the elimination diet is you kind of remove a lot of the known culprits for people. And then you add culprit foods for a lot of people. Add in one thing at a time and see, see how you do, right? I also like the idea of water fasting. Like if you water fasted for a week or two and then added in something, you know, yeah. added in those things one thing at a time and see if you have reactions to those or the pain comes back or all that. I think there's a lot of things that can do. I also think giving your body a break from certain things can be really beneficial, right? Yeah. Um, and I also do see, like I had Terry, uh, Dr. Terry Walls, your good friend. Uh, I would call her uh, a friend now. I think she's amazing. I had her on the podcast and we had a wonderful conversation. And it's like, what she discovered for her, I mean, she's high vegetables, high, you know, high, uh, uh, a lot of uh, fermented foods, but she also eats like liver and things like that. And it's like, look, that that helped her in addition to everything else she has done. So yeah. and, it has, and it's helped a lot of people because she's actually doing clinical studies uh, on the, that diet. So it's, you know, but I mean, I will say just in response that, um, you know, I already was on 
an elimination diet. I already had removed a lot of out, like I, you know, and this is, and I did do water fast, although not a two week water fast, but I did do regular water fasts, like five day, three to five day water fasts. Um, I'm a fan of all of those, although I don't recommend somebody just do a two week water fast without very particular supervision, because I think for a lot of people that would, that could be very challenging for their bodies and especially when they eat again. Um, but, uh, but yeah, like I agree with all of those things that um, it's just, it's so interesting how there are so many, and, and I actually would apply this not just to diet, but to all kinds of vehicles of healing, modalities of healing. You know, the person who gets better with Ayurveda is like, might proselytize Ayurveda for everyone, but it really actually like, maybe for someone else, traditional Chinese medicine or an elimination diet or a vegan diet or what have you, right? Or I'm going talking to- about Going to Paul Saladino. So when he started his online thing and in his book, it was all carnivore, all animal, fruit is the devil. And now he eats a lot of fruit and he promotes fruit, right? And, and I'm not picking on him, but there's one example of, of as we evolve in our understandings over time through our experience. When I started the raw vegan diet for that year, raw was the best thing in the world. Everybody needs to be raw all Did the that time. Too. <laughs> and it's like- I loved, by the way, I loved the raw vegan diet. I thought yeah. it was really fun and delicious. Yeah. And then like, I just, one day my body was like, absolutely no more. <laughs> like, same, here. same here. I was like, I need some cooked food. And I was like, yeah. I yeah. could eat it. Well, we also moved to like a, 400 acre ranch in the middle of the desert, two hours away from the nearest grocery store. Yeah. So it was really hard to get good organic foods to make the raw foods we needed. And I was just like, one day we just cooked up some rice and beans and I was like, all right, the raw food's done, but I still eat, you know, high raw or, or a lot of, you know, still have raw food. Yeah. But it was just like, I went from proselytizing it to like, okay. You know, and that's, that's, a, that's the thing that I'm more aware of now than anything. If I discover something new, being mindful that, hey, you know, I can share my experience with this, but, you know, going out and like pushing it all over the place to everybody, you know, as this is the thing uh, that everyone needs to do. It's like, I just, I'm very careful about, you know, not doing that anymore. Um, we're trying to be, trying to be, I'm not perfect. That's for sure. <laughs> I know, of course. And like, you know, because we assume other people haven't discovered, you know, quote unquote, discovered that yet. Maybe they already did have already moved through that or whatever. Or in my case, you know, like I started learning with a lot of indigenous people who, you know, the people that I knew <clears throat> and I learned with in the communities that I, you know, shared food with, they, there are certain meats they would never eat, but they would never not eat meat. Like they were, you know, they would eat, they have certain meats they always eat. And it's like, you know, or they hunt and that's like how they live. And so there is also like kind of this built-in privilege when we make these assumptions like of how people should eat. It assumes we can get certain foods all year round that we're not necessarily always eating seasonally maybe, or that we can access things that other people can't access. And so it is interesting because, of course, what I know about indigenous communities is their chronic disease and cancer and all of that is practically non-existent um, in places that they're living their traditional way of life. And um, so that's also very interesting, right, that there's 
there's a long lineage of eating in particular ways that most of us don't necessarily eat. Yeah. Uh, wild, wild meat, for example, let's say, or wild vegetables or just fruit, because that's what you can pick and get and vegetables, and especially in certain tropical places, much harder to grow. Um, so yeah, it's that's just a, interesting. That's a two hour conversation on its yes. own. And we, should, and we should have that again in the future. But, uh, I know we've, I know we're uh, up for time. So um, you one, thank you. This has been awesome. Uh, and I have like a hundred other things I want to ask you. And so got to have you back in the future uh, if you'd like to come back. Of course. Um, and two, you have a new book all about psychedelics that uh, has just come out. When this podcast is being released, you have it coming out with the summit. Uh, what's the title of the book? Where can people find it? The book is called uh, The Master Plant Experience. Uh, the Science, Safety, and Sacred Ceremony of Psychedelics. And it is very much about making a relationship. I go about what's happening in your body, what we need, what, what that sort of feeling of disconnection um, that really most illness and disease, in fact, is actually about um, being out of relationship and being not in good community with our bodies and in our lives. Um, non-judgmental <laughs> but but ways to kind of rebuild that it is definitely my particular view on how to work with these medicines so it's not like a rah 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 let's all take psychedelics point of view um but how to really be educated an educated person around the science around the safety and and how to engage respectfully and ceremonially for people who want to either you know macrodosing, microdosing, or quantum dosing with these medicines. Awesome. I'm excited to get a copy of it when it comes out. And um, yeah, thanks again. Appreciate you. Thank you so much, Nathan. It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Nathan Crane podcast. If you found value in today's podcast, please share it with others. Subscribe to catch future episodes and leave a rating and a review. For more information or to connect with Nathan, check him out online at www.nathancrane.com and follow him on Facebook and YouTube at Nathan Crane. Until next time, this has been the Nathan Crane Podcast.